Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here. Real quick before the interview, business. Buy my book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Uh, Stop by foolserrand.us. Look it up on Amazon.com. Sign up for the podcast feeds for this show and share them with your friends. Uh, Donations of 50 or more at scotthorton.org or at the Libertarian Institute. Get a signed copy of the book, uh, $200 or more, and you get a lifetime subscription to listen and think libertarian audiobooks if you're interested in that. And, hey, give me a good review. Uh, If you've read the book on Amazon, if you like the show over there on iTunes, Stitcher, things like that, give me some stars and help promote the show. Sorry I'm late. I had to stop by the Wax Museum again and give the finger to FDR. We know al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? It's a proud day for America. And by God, we've kicked Vietnam Syndrome once and for all. Thank you very, very much. I say it, I say it again. You've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. These witnesses are trying to simply deny things that just about everybody else accepts as fact. He came, he saw, he died. <laughs> well, we ain't killing their army, but we killing them. We be on CNN like, say our name, Ben, say it, say it three times. The meeting of the largest armies in the history of the world. Then there's going to be an invasion. All right, you guys, Scott Horton Show. On the line, I got Patrick Coburn, Middle East correspondent for The Independent. That's independent.co.uk. And they run all his articles also at uns.com, U-N-Z, uns.com. He's the author of The Age of Jihad, Chaos, and Caliphate, The Rise of the Islamic State, and a lot of books before that, too. You can find his uh, all his collected works there on his Amazon page. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. How are you, sir? Pretty good. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate you joining us today, and boy, do you write important stuff here. Um, before we get to today's story, which is huge, I, I wanted to ask you about Mosul in, um, I guess, what used to be Eastern Islamic State, Northwestern Iraq, uh, the, la- the second to last major stronghold of the Islamic State there has now finally been liberated uh, by a combination of American and Iraqi and I don't know what other forces there, uh, but you have reported, I think, alone uh, – have been reporting uh, casualties on uh, order far greater than any other media outlet has been talking about that I can see there. Can you describe what you've seen? Yeah, I'm a bit surprised that more people haven't uh, uh, focused on this. Um, You know, first of all, this was a very long siege, you know, I think it was uh, uh, just under nine months. But... uh, more significantly, what led to the really heavy casualties is uh, two things. One, uh, Islamic State, ISIS, Daesh, were refusing to let people out and shooting anybody who tried. You know, sometimes, you know, um, people found there were heaps of bodies, 60 or 70 people. Uh, so, you know, because unlike others, most other sieges, in that the, the, uh, it was impossible for the civilian or very difficult for the civilian population to get out. A lot of them did, but quite a number didn't. Um, and as ISIS got pushed back into a smaller and smaller enclave in West Mosul, uh, more and more people were crammed into fewer and fewer buildings. Now, these buildings were coming under attack, not just from the air, but from artillery and rocket bombardment from the Iraqi army. They had, you know, howitzers, 
They had uh, grads, which are multiple uh, um, rocket launching, multiple rocket launchers, not very accurate. You sort of blaze away in the general direction of the enemy. Um, so there was a continual artillery bombardment going on in Mosul, uh, hitting buildings that were often pretty old, pretty fragile, and were crammed full of people. Uh, you know, I have accounts of people, you know, said there were, you know, 50, 100 people in a single building. Um, and this went on for a long time. Now, the Habitat, the, the UN, uh, UN agency, says that uh, looking at satellite photographs, 5,000 buildings alone in the old city alone were destroyed. Um, you know, many other districts, I think there were 16 districts in uh, Mosul, which uh, the UN says were completely destroyed. So people not being allowed uh, uh, with very prolonged artillery uh, bombardment and air attack um, and all these buildings uh, destroyed, it's really not surprising that civilian casualties should be very heavy. I mean, I'm not sure why others have you know, reported what happened to a family or a street, but haven't really joined up the dots. But, you know, a lot of people were being killed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what happens is the government says, well, maybe as many as a dozen people have died. And then others say, well, we have specific news reports that it show it's at least two dozen. But then, mm. you know, they, they don't really go yeah. beyond that, that there's so many deaths that aren't reported well, at all. Yeah, I mean, Kurdish intelligence, I mean, the Harsha Zibari, the former Iraqi foreign minister and um, the finance minister, uh, told me on the record that Kurdish intelligence believes that upwards of 40,000 people might have been killed. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but it's, and it's, you know, it's, since the uh, the Iraqi government didn't make any effort to find out that uh, civil defense had about 25 guys and one truck uh, and one uh, cr- small crane and none of them had been paid, you know, just a lot of these people were just under the rubble. So nobody's ever really going to find out how many people died there. Yeah. Well, now, but you've been there, and the 40,000 number sounds credible to you, it sounds like, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think it was in the tens of thousands. I, you know, I don't know it's 40,000, but I think it was in the tens of thousands. Yeah. So I guess then, I, I mean, we had talked about this in over the course of the war against the Islamic State, about how in... Uh, I guess in Tikrit and in Fallujah, I guess they held out in Tikrit and Fallujah. They pretty much fled pretty quickly Um, in Ramadi. They held out a little bit longer, but then also fled. And then the big question was whether they were going to really try to hold out for Mosul or whether they would run for Mosul. And I think you had predicted back a year ago, they don't really have anywhere else to run, maybe to Raqqa, but they're running out of options. These Islamic state guys running out of geography. And it seems now they say that Talafar uh, near the Syrian border has been liberated. And so is the Islamic State now pretty much down to Raqqa only, Patrick? Well, yeah, and, you know, these are big defeats. Let's not underestimate um, the caliphate as a territorial entity you know, added to pieces. But to keep in mind also that in some of these places like Talafa, um, Islamic State clearly decided not to fight, suffer heavy casualties and to try and revert to guerrilla war. I don't know if they're going to succeed because they have such a, so many enemies, but, you know, that, that seems to be their strategy. Um, and, it, you know, in Iraq, some places they defended, some places they didn't. Um, 
in Ramadi, most of the civilians had already left. Uh, in Fallujah, a lot of them left uh, through sort of uh, humanitarian corridors. I think that uh, Mosul was different, that uh, Islamic State um, decided to just kill anybody who tried to leave the city. Mm. And then now, so as far as Raqqa, I mean, the Marines already have the place surrounded and they're working with the Syrian Kurds, but are the the Iraqi forces, are they also moving on Raqqa to pinch them from no, the west? No, no, it's mostly... It's mostly... It's mostly the um, Syrian Democratic Forces, which are sort of meant to be partly Arab, the local Arab tribes, but the, the main sort of punching power is the Syrian Kurdish organization um, and the People's Protection Units. Uh, but because these are so much disliked by Turkey, it's given a sort of uh, Arab coloring. Mm -hmm. And there are Arabs mm -hmm. fighting there, but the, the majority of the fighters are Kurds. Uh, and certainly the most effective fighters. Um, yeah, I mean, they've been moving. And the thing is, Islamic State has devised some uh, fairly effective uh, tactics to hold cities like that uh, against uh, ground attack and above all, and uh, heavy bombardment uh, that they've, in uh, Mosul and again in Raqqa, they've dug enormous sort of networks of tunnels where they can hide, where they can move about where they can launch uh, surprise attacks. They can keep uh, uh, their supplies. They uh, the way they usually operate is have a small squad with a, a sniper and um, a few other people. Then they'll go into a building uh, and snipe, fire a few shots, maybe shoot somebody uh, on the other side. Then immediately they're out of that building through holes that have been cut in the walls. So when there comes retaliatory artillery fire air attack they're not there anymore it's just the civilians to bear the brunt of this yeah um do you have an estimate how long you think it'll take to finish rousting the islamic state out of raqqa and turning them fully back into a group well, yeah, so they, they took the old city the uh, last week um i've heard about a week ago from commanders there kurdish commanders that they think it's going to take about two months hmm. okay keep in mind one other thing that i think people isn't mentioned enough you know, it's in the interests of the Syrian Kurds to be in the process of taking Raqqa because that keeps, you know, they're allied to the U.S., they're supported by the U.S. and other air forces. Uh, but if they actually defeat Islamic State mm -hmm. in Raqqa mm -hmm. and elsewhere, then the U.S. may not have any further use for them. Or at least their main use will no longer be there. So they're very worried that the U.S. will return to its alliance with Turkey and leave the uh, Syrian Kurds isolated, and they'll be squeezed between the Damascus government and uh, and Erdogan in Turkey. So, you know, in some ways it's in their interest to keep that fight going, to not actually win it. What you say about the Americans using them up and spitting them out seems inevitable. Yeah, well, they do have some other alternatives, and, you know, they have sort of up-and-down relationships with Damascus. Historically, Assad and uh, the Damascus government had always oppressed the Kurds, in the north, treat a lot of them as second-class citizens. A lot of them were even weren't even regarded as citizens. Uh, and actually, the first sort of some of the first um, demonstrations against uh, the Assad government came in Kurdistan, but in Syrian uh, Syrian Kurdistan. But these days, you know, they against Turkey, against uh, uh, jihadis, 
they might get a better deal from Damascus and from the Russians, so they might look in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I think they're, they're wobbling. They probably prefer to stick with the Americans, but nobody quite knows what long-term American policy will be. Uh, will they sort of revert to Turkey and, uh, uh, you know, basically betray the Kurds? Oh, they probably wouldn't say betray, but they'd say, you know, that they, they no longer need the Kurds. So uh, that's what the Kurds worry about there. All right, hang on just one second. Listen, guys, I got a new sponsor. It's Hussein Badakhchani. He wrote this great book, No Dev, No Ops, No IT, Principles Governing the Ideology, Methodology, and Praxeology of Informed IT Decision-Making. It's about how to run your computer business right. That's what it is. No Dev, No Ops, No IT by Hussein Badakhchani. It's on Amazon.com right now, right there with The War State by Mike Swanson, who also does investment advice at WallStreetWindow.com. And then when he tells you so, you buy your metals from Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. at rrbi.co. Right? Get it? RBI? Easy to remember. Run bad it in. rrbi.co for Roberts & Roberts. Get your anti-government propaganda at libertystickers.com. Get pro-band or business propaganda at thebumpersticker.com. And get your book edited at 3 t Editing. Dot com. All right. Now, so uh, we have been very privileged, me and this audience, to have been very privileged to have been talking with you about the war. Well, really all the way back to Iraq War II and all through the uh, Libya war and the intervention in Syria and the rise of the Islamic State. And so people can go back and check the archives and find all these interviews of it's almost like a flip book, a step-by-step as the, the rise of when al-Qaeda in Iraq came to Syria and they created the al-Nusra Front. And then it was back in 2013 that Baghdadi and Jelani, his deputy, split. And Jelani stayed loyal to al-Qaeda and Baghdadi went ahead and created his caliphate. And now you have this important, oh, now it's three years later. The caliphate is pretty much on its last legs being smashed in eastern Syria and western Iraq. Uh, And then uh, you have this brand new piece out today in The Independent. While defeat of ISIS dominates global attention, Al-Qaeda builds strength in Syria. So I want to hear all about Idlib province, everything about, like you say in this article here, but I wanted to start with the theory before the practice, Patrick, because wasn't it the case that Al-Qaeda's argument was we have to keep attacking the Americans because... Only after they finally withdraw from the region uh, after declaring bankruptcy, only then will we be able to create a caliphate. Otherwise, the Americans will come and bomb it, which is then exactly what happened when Baghdadi quit listening to Zawahiri. So I wonder whether in the arguments among jihadis, whether this you know, latest turn of events has really proven Zawahiri right and whether you think that means that al-Qaeda is going to focus their attention again on the United States. Yeah, I don't know if you can carry the argument that far, but it's an important question. You're right to raise it. Um, the Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, at the height after the capture of Mosul in 2014 by Islamic State, you know, they were saying, yeah, we've captured it against, you know, great odds. And the caliphate, this shows that uh, we're declaring the caliphate. And, you know, at that point, they're advancing on Baghdad. They were sweeping through eastern Syria. Uh they were making sort of what they thought of as God-given gains on the ground. So, you know, they seem to have uh, be divinely inspired. Of course, now that the uh, 
they're on the retreat and being defeated, that argument doesn't work anymore. Um, and that isn't going to be, going to be a, an inspiration to potential followers as it once was, I mean, the caliphate. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, while those who were al-Qaeda, which uh, advocated a more sort of cautious approach, um, would uh, seem to have uh, won that argument. But, of course, also, I mean, al-Qaeda, you know, which in Syria has gone through different name changes. At one moment, it the, was the Jabhat uh, al-Nusra, uh, the al-Nusra Front, at uh, uh, currently, it's exactly the same guys. It's uh, uh, at uh, Tahrir al-Sham. Uh, but, uh, I mean, let's just call it al-Qaeda. Um, and after the fall of uh, East Aleppo, they moved again. They'd always been very the strongest rebel movement there, Islamist movement. They moved against their former allies, Arar al-Sham, which uh, ideologically was pretty well the same, the sort of fundamentalist Sunni Arab uh, movement uh, backed by Turkey, they moved against them, and they become they're now in complete control of the sort of Idlib province, which is west of Aleppo, and um, uh, the areas around that. It's probably about two million people there. Also, which is very important, they control a uh, border crossing with Turkey, so they can get in supplies and ammunition and things. And you know, this is probably the biggest concentration or the biggest most powerful sort of Al-Qaeda, small de facto state, if you like, um, that we've ever seen, you know, certainly since 9-11. Um, and they'll benefit from ISIS, uh, Islamic State collapsing, um, among other things. You know, it's, it's, the, the leaders don't necessarily sort of move from one organization to another, but the foot soldiers will, you know, there are a lot of sort of hardened fighters who were with Islamic State, who probably now move over to Al-Qaeda. It's much more fluid on the ground there than people imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're in a pretty powerful position uh, there. Now, you know, we'll see in the next year or two or the next few months, you know, will the U.S., Russia, all the others focus on destroying Al-Qaeda and Nidlib? Well, maybe, but uh, who knows? They're not, they're not as provocative as the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. Islamic State was had a genius for creating enemies. They basically regarded themselves as being at war with all the world. Al Qaeda is a bit more uh, careful on who it uh, who it alienates and when. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. So here's the thing, though. Now the Washington Post reported a couple of months ago, and I guess everybody seemed to agree that this was real. That although they they spun it as treason that Trump ordered the CIA to stop backing the jihadists in Syria because this is only just, that's what Russia wants or whatever. That was the Washington Post spin. But on the facts, though, everybody seemed to agree that that was really right. That, that in fact, one story had it that Pompeo, the new head of the CIA, had given a briefing to Trump showing him the Al-Zinki Free Syrian Army guys beheading the little boy, the Palestinian boy, and that he said, so don't you think we should call this off Trump? And Trump said, yes, let's call it off, uh, which I think was kind of his platform all along anyway on that. Um, but then you're telling me, oh, yeah, no, there's a 
border crossing between Al-Qaedistan in Idlib province and Turkey, our NATO ally that we know America's been working with on supporting these jihadists all this time anyway. Charles Lister has talked about that, the American-Saudi room, as he called it, in Turkey where they coordinate this stuff. And so I wonder, what is the truth of this? Is the CIA, are the Americans still behind this? Or they can't stop the Turkeys from continuing the policy, the Turkish, I mean, from continuing the policy anyway, or what? It's a mix of all these things. You know, that policy has been pretty disastrous in Syria, both from the American point of view and from Turkey's point of view, too. I mean, Turkey, from an early stage, in uh, 2011, thought, you know, one point of then... Uh, a Turkish Prime Minister, David Olyu, in, I think, uh, the end of 2011, or maybe I think it was 2012, said, you know, it's not years, just a matter of weeks or months before Assad goes. You know, they really got the place wrong. Uh, now, you know, they're not that, their relations aren't so, Turkey's relations aren't so good these days with um, uh, the, the, the new uh, al-Nusra, with al-Qaeda. On the other hand, it probably doesn't want to wholly alienate them. It also may be they could send its own troops in there. That means a whole lot of other complications. Um, certainly, confrontation with Assad. Uh, Turkey's kind of retreating from the policy it had from the sort of five years after, four or five years after 2011. Um, the accepting that Assad is going to stay um, and its hostility is much more towards the West these days. It's also difficult to intervene because they have an understanding or an alliance with Russia. Russia doesn't want them to intervene or probably doesn't. So it's a complicated situation, but Al-Qaeda there will try and sort of sort of stay in being, uh, stick around sort of for as long as they can. And they remain a, a very powerful force. Well, one thing that worth mentioning on the ground in these places is, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda are so militarily strong is, one, you know, they've got very committed guys who will fight or also experienced, but also they have suicide bombers in large numbers. Any successful rebel offensive in Syria has always been led by suicide bombers. That's, you know, the, otherwise these guys are, are light infantry. They don't have much artillery than tanks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they do mm -hmm. have these suicide bombers, and these are pretty effective. Uh, and uh, the, in Idlib, they'll have a lot of these. Um, so um, that makes them a significant military force, whatever happens. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's certainly true that you know, somebody like Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, who's supposed to be some kind of realist or something, he's made some of the most hawkish statements about Assad and that, yeah, no, he he cannot stay. A long term solution must include him stepping down from power at some point in these kind of statements. And so I guess it still kind of is up in the air whether the Trump administration itself, never mind D.C., has really made up their mind even one way or the other about what to do with this. Even though you might have yeah, thought so, that, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but um, you know, but on the ground they haven't really done much to prevent um, Assad's army moving east. You know, they, as you know, the, um, the Syrian army relieved this um, uh, city Deir Ez-Zor. It's the biggest city in eastern uh, 
Syria, which is a vast area of desert, but it has oil wells and other things there. Um, this city had been besieged by ISIS for three years, just been relieved by the uh, Syrian army, and they'll move east from there. About half the uh, oil field and stuff, you know, half the oil production capacity is just to the east of the, uh, the city, which they've relieved. So, uh, and they're not doing much to stop that, or anything to stop that at the moment, probably because they don't think a confrontation is there in their interests. They don't have any allies to do it with who are, are effective. The Kurds don't want to do it for them. They don't want to become uh, sort of American mercenaries. Uh, so it looks as though they're going to tolerate that. But as always, you know, with the Trump administration, one doesn't know, you know, maybe the Trump administration doesn't know what's right. policy. <laughs> well, I wonder about the Saudis, too. You know, um, there's that famous quote from Prince Saud al-Faisal where he told John Kerry, he said, Dash is our response to your support for the Dawa, which, of course, means the Shiite parties that America installed in power in Iraq War II. Um, but uh, so I wonder whether you think that that's really changed, that the Saudis maybe have backed well, off their support for Islamic State or not? Their support. I think also they've got other preoccupations these days. You know, they're involved in this war in Yemen, which I mean, it's horrific. And uh, they're bombing the place and but they haven't won it, you know. Secondly, they're involved in this, uh, you know, confrontation with Gatter. Now, it used to be Saudi Arabia and Gatter. They used to be the financiers and, to a degree, the organizers of support for the rebels in association with Turkey. Now, Saudi Arabia's got other things to think about now. And also, it doesn't want to bet on a loser. And it's pretty obvious that in the long term, the, the Syrian rebels are losers. So I think, in effect, Syrian policy, uh, Saudi policy in Syria has changed, maybe not rhetorically, but in terms of the amount that they're prepared to do and the amount they can do. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly seems, I guess, I don't know about the Turks and the Arab states, but it sure seems like from the point of view of the United States and Israel that this policy, since 2011 at least, if unless you want to go back further, but that this policy of backing the jihadis there has completely blown up in their face. I mean, they ended up creating the Islamic State which was a bridge way too far. So then they waged this three-year war, Iraq War Three, to destroy the Islamic State. But now, if you listen to them tell it, boo-hoo, they have accidentally created the Shiite crescent that used to just be a figment of their imagination. They've now expanded the power and influence of Iraqi Shiistan and that Baghdad government even further east in what they're panicking and calling this direct land bridge through to Syria and to Hezbollah, which is what they supposedly yeah, were so trying to prevent. Well, they go on about this land bridge as if <laughs> the Iranians couldn't communicate with their, you know, their allies in Syria and Lebanon uh, beforehand. You know, they, you know, there are things like planes, you know, right. <laughs> um, you know, they, the, um, and most of the ammunition and so forth comes from the Russians anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, the people, the audience kind of propagandists, this sort of, you know, yeah, it's significant that the allies of Iran, the Shia and the sects associated with the Shia, are now sort of are dominant, you know, in Iran, in Iraq, uh, in Syria and in Lebanon. But they were, you know, they are the majority on the ground there, not in Syria, but if you take all these countries together, the majority are Shia. Um, and 
you know, so this was always the case. Now we have this sort of this so-called land bridge, as if the, you know, the Iranians were going to be sending chariots or something to uh, <laughs> right. Rather, so forth. <laughs> you know, and people, you know, this Kurds. I mean, it's kind of propaganda thing. Draw me lines on the map showing, you know, this route. This route, you know, it's not actually a road. You know, what are they going to send on this? Are they really going to send to all this? This very long distance, you know, mm. I think that that's nonsense. You know, what's um, the land bridge is sort of a bit well, of rhetoric. It's, it's, it's symbolic, yeah, but it's symbolic of the fact that the Iranian allies and uh, the Shia or sects associated with the Shia, like the Alawites, have come out the winners mm-hmm. in this whole sort of convulsion in that part of the Middle East, you know, in Iraq and Syria, right. to a degree in Lebanon. Um, They've come out the winners, but it's actually to say there's a new sort of road going to be built on a grand highway. I think it's, it's very naive. Yeah. Um, and um, the um, so I don't think that that's going to make any difference. Although the Kurd, the Iraqi Kurds like to sort of try and frighten the Americans and so forth by saying that, but I don't I don't they really believe it. You know, so are we getting to the end of this? Yeah, we, you know, the Islamic State is going down. Al-Qaeda is still there and is more powerful. Um, you know, the, actually, the, the Trump policy has been, in Iraq, really, it's continuing the Obama policy. It really hasn't changed much. You know, Obama did more militarily than uh, the White House admitted when uh, he was in it. Uh, Trump does sort of less new in Iraq. And he returns, and to a degree, likewise in uh, in Syria, it it hasn't changed that amount. But uh, overall, Trump has, you know, uh, wants what he actually done on the ground seems to indicate that he wants to keep out of it. And he wouldn't have been very smart to try and oppose the Syrian army moving east, um, because you could only do it by bombing them, and then you get involved in another war. They don't have any local allies, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, after all, the CIA and the others spent, uh, you know, years and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to create a pro-American, Arab, rebel, non-jihadi, you know, fighting force, and they failed notoriously. And they're certainly not going to be able to do it at this end of the day. At this end of the day. Mm. Well, uh, no, so they don't have allies to do that. So now, as far as the Russians, they're they're busy in Raqqa now, but they'll probably come to Idlib next, huh? Yeah, I imagine that you know that at some point they will go for the Syrian arm when they've defeated ISIS. They'll think about attacking Idlib. At the moment, they want the west side of Syria to keep quiet because Assad has always been short on combat troops. You know, they have guys. You know, so you see guys at the um, checkpoints on the road, you know, very fat, you know, with, um, smoking cigarettes and uh, taking small bribes, you know. But th- th- this isn't really the army. The actual combat army has always been short of troops. Mm-hmm. And they can only really fight on one front at a time. Now, they're fighting uh, one front at a time. So they're fighting Islamic State in eastern Syria. They don't want trouble in the West for the moment. And they might guess, I guess, Al Qaeda might attack them. But for the moment, they want to keep things quiet. All right. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming back on the show, Patrick, to talk about this stuff. Not at all. Thank you so much. All right, you guys. That is the great Patrick Coburn. He is the Middle East correspondent at The Independent. 
This latest one is a blockbuster here. While the feat of ISIS dominates global attention, Al-Qaeda builds strength in Syria. And check out his great books, of course, Age of Jihad and Chaos and Caliphate. Hey, and check out his blurb in my book, which is Fool's Air and Time to End the War in Afghanistan. All right, thanks, you guys.